Good morning, church, and welcome to this service. Behind Closed Doors. It's an interesting title, and I wonder where I'm going with it. Should I get into people's private lives? Should all doors be open? No, that's not at all where I'm going. Here are some questions that relate to the title that I chose for today's message. Who am I, or who are you, when nobody is watching? What kind of parent? What kind of spouse? What kind of church member? What kind of employee? What kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian am I, when we think that no one is watching? Paul addresses this question and others in Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 30. I invite you to turn to that in your Bibles as well. If you have a Bible app, to turn to that passage as well. The overriding theme that Paul is relating to here is conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Listen as I read the passage for us. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Three questions that come to me as I work through this passage. Number one is, what is worthy conduct? Number two, what are the results of worthy conduct? And thirdly, what decisions do I need to make in the light of Paul's instruction? Let's take them one at a time. What is worthy conduct? The first thing that Paul says in introducing the concept of worthy conduct is whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's important for us to understand in the context of the Philippian church the meaning of the words, whatever happens. Remember back in the previous verses that we looked at last week, Paul is struggling with the concept of what he should do and his personal desires. Listen to what he says in the previous chapter. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to de depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So Paul, in his innermost thoughts, is thinking about heaven and the glory of it. But he's also thinking about the work of God that he has been called to do. And he's torn in his mind. From his perspective, heaven is far more glorious. But his work here is also appealing. His relationship with helping churches, his leading people into a relationship in a personal way with Jesus Christ is very appealing. And yes, his helping churches, even in the midst of conflict, is appealing. But he poses a question to himself, yet what shall I choose? In reality, really interesting question because it's really not his choice to make. It could be as well, in answering the question as to what he means by his introduction, that he's referring to what he has said in verse 7. It is right, he says, for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace for me. Is the whatever happens referring to whether he is free or whether he is in prison? It really could be either or both, but the bottom line is it doesn't really matter because his life is under the control of the Lord. Paul's instruction to them in the light of whatever happens is to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This latter one makes sense because in the light of what Paul says, that whether I come and see you or you only hear about you in my absence, Christ is glorified. So then the question is, what is conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ? The second thing that Paul says about worthy conduct is that it's to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the standard. The word worthy is an interesting word with the meaning of, uh, of deserving or suitable. A laborer is worthy of his hire. A piece of land is worth the price, a certain price given to it. A house is worth X number of dollars. Here's the question. What is the gospel worth? One of the clearest presentations of the gospel is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen as as I read that passage. Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 
And here's where he presents the gospel. For, I have, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. The gospel standard or the gospel worth is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ as witnessed by more than 500 believers. The gospel is all about commitment and identification. Jesus came. He lived in the midst of a world that rejected him, rejected the message, and he ultimately paid the supreme price, his life. In all of his life, even though he is Lord, he is God in his fullness. Jesus never made anything in his life about him. It was always about bringing glory to the Father. Walking worthy of the gospel is the realization of the truth of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when dealing with an issue in the Corinthian church, chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price, Paul says. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. Walking worthy of the gospel means that there is the realization that as a Christian, I live to a different standard than those who rejected Christ. I cannot justify my actions by relating to a standard of how others act in a similar situation. My standard is not comparison to what others have done. My standard is comparison to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel. A behavior that demonstrates in a living way the value and the worth of the message itself. I believe it is also saying here that the manner in which I take my stand is really significant. It's my opinion that the attitude of I am suffering for Jesus is not a manner worthy of the gospel. In my opinion, that's a pride problem, not a witness stance. But let's move on. The second thing relating to this are what are the results of a worthy conduct? Here's what Paul had to say. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, 
I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I see him saying three things here. Standing firm in one spirit. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened, thirdly, in any way by those who oppose you. Notice standing firm in one spirit. Did you notice in the passages I read it, the emphasis that Paul made on the one, standing firm in one spirit, standing firm for one in the faith of the gospel. A result of walking worthy of the gospel of Christ is unity within the body. Unity is an interesting thing. Let's say we have ten people gathered. A decision has to be made with regard to the activities of the day. We're out doing things together. The group has decided that whatever we do, we're going to do it together. Let's say eight want to go on a hike. Two don't. Do we have unity? Let's say that nine want to ski and one wants to read. Do we have unity? Ten want to go on a bike ride. Do we have unity? In each of these scenarios, it's my opinion that we may or we may not have unity. Unity does not depend on the vote, but it depends on my response to it. Even if the vote is unanimous, but in my heart I only voted in a certain way because I knew what the result would be, it still may mean that there is not unity in the group. Unity doesn't necessarily mean agreement, but it does mean oneness in spirit. This to me is the beauty of our congregational system that our church has. In our meetings, we have full freedom to express our opinion. With our annual meeting coming up, difference of opinion on various issues is good. It brings out strength in the process. We have the full freedom to vote in the direction that we feel is right. In fulfilling Paul's statement of standing firm in one spirit, Scripture then requires that we support the will of the majority in the vote. I'm glad, down deep in my heart, that that's been the pattern of our little church. Paul expands on this in Ephesians chapter 4, the first three verses. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of truth. Here's a sobering truth relating to what Paul is saying. He's saying that to our shame, Christians in the church are not always the easiest to get along with. Why else would he say to the church to walk in lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing one another in love, 
if there, weren't, if there wasn't an issue relating to that that he needed to address. He is saying it because what we often say we believe in our hearts and express with our mouths doesn't always make its way to our feet. Walking worthy of the Gospel of Christ is contrary to that in that it is evidenced by standing firm in one spirit. And then he says, secondly, that they are striving together as one for the faith of the Gospel. Striving as one for the faith of the Gospel. I want to introduce something that I've talked about before in our church, but I believe is very powerful. If it is our Lord's will that we strive together for the faith of the Gospel, then it's logical to assume that our Lord has equipped us to accomplish that task. He does not ask us to do something that we are not qualified for. It's here that the whole concept of spiritual gifts come in. Spiritual gifts equip us to do the work of the Lord. Three major passages in the Word of God that deal with spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, uh, chapter 12 through chapter 14. And 1 Peter chapter 4, 10 and 11. I encourage you to write those verses and chapters down. And after I'm done, look up and compare the things that I'm about to say back to those passages. Let's read part of 1 Corinthians 12 and some of the rest. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are the different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then in Romans chapter 12, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance to your faith. If serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Peter writes, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Here are some conclusions from these three passages. Nine of them. One is, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Two, every believer is gifted uniquely. In other words, differently. Thirdly, every gift has a different function. Fourthly, the purpose of the gift is to serve others. The proper exercise of the gift, number five, is a demonstration of stewardship. Sixthly, the gift or gifts given to the believer are for the common good. Seventhly, the gifts are given according to the grace given to us. Eighthly, the gifts are given by God as He sees fit. Ninthly, the key to all of this is that there is unity in the midst of diversity. There is a oneness in the midst of all the differences. I'd invite you to take those nine things and take them back to the passages that we read and see exactly where the words are that I took them from. Remember as well, in the light of Paul's admonition in Philippians 1, to strive together for the faith of the Gospel. What this means practically is that we all have a significant part to play in the Gospel, in the effectiveness of the Gospel. But it also means that our parts will be different and they will be each significant in the sight of God and will be each significant in the fulfillment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what Paul, here, here's what God is telling us through Paul and through Peter. He's saying to us, I want you to build my church. I'm giving you architects, contractors, laborers, electricians, plumbers, cooks, dishwashers, janitors, everything you need to build the church. But that's the physical church. He's telling us in the church in reality, which is the believers, I've given you everything you need. I've given you preachers. I've given you helpers. I've given you teachers. I've given you people with compassion. I've given you people who can do various kinds of ministry. My church is completely equipped. Everything you need to get the job done has been given. So here are some things we can't say. We can't say, I am insignificant. We can't say, I have no part to play. We can't say, they don't need me. We can't say, I can't do anything. We can't say, God doesn't understand me. But we can say, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for the gift or gifts that you have given me through your Spirit. And we can say, here am I. Use me. In my mind, there is nothing more powerful as a Christian witness than the unity and oneness of believers in the church. In the midst of the diversity 
that God has given to us. I've been a part of churches that have had a contentious member. Devastating. I've been a part of a church that has been a part or had divisive pastoral leadership. Devastating to the church and the community. I've been a part of a church where there's been an unwillingness to recognize and submit to leadership. Impossible to move forward as a church in a community that sees that division. I've been a part of a church that has gone through devastating loss of membership because of a change in the economic situation of the time. Powerful to the community when the church responded in oneness. The body is an intricate, complex group of people put together to accomplish the work of God. A number of years ago, friends of ours were missionaries in Africa. They noticed some issues with their young daughter. The medical clinic and the community that they were in had minimal diagnostic equipment. A test that was used to determine if there was something wrong for that little girl was to put her hand out and take it back and bring it to her nose. She couldn't do it. They brought her home and discovered she had a significant brain tumor. A sidebar here of one of the advantages of church at home. It just struck me that you would never do this in church. But it's my guess that you at home, 50% of you stuck your hand out and brought it to your nose to see if you were okay. Wouldn't do that in church. Uh, nothing to do with the message, but just a sidebar. The intricacies of the body. When one part isn't functioning, it affects the whole body. Just this week I watched a video sent to me by a friend on the treatment of cancer that some doctors in Israel had discovered. It's being tested in Europe and Asia and the United States and other places. When a tumor is discovered, these doctors found, worked, it is injected with an extremely cold substance. Much more complicated than that. that. That's just the minimal aspect of it. The freezing kills the tumor and the body in its functioning will naturally dispose of the remnants of the frozen substance. I'm not trained in that field. I, I'm an amateur. But my understanding of what that video was saying is that the body works in such an intricate way that it dispels that which is wrong. The phenomenal power of the physical body working together. And our Lord is saying through Paul, the phenomenal power, the phenomenal relationship of the spiritual body working together, walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the third result 
standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, and thirdly, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. No one likes opposition. We all like a smooth ride. Fear is a natural result of opposition. I admire the courage of our first responders in our pandemic, also in other situations. Takes courage to knock on the front door of a home where you know there's domestic violence and potentially a gun inside. It takes courage to ride on a fire truck to a five-alarm fire, knowing the dangers that are ahead. It takes courage to walk into a hospital room of someone who you know has a highly contagious disease, but knowing that they need treatment and they need help. It takes courage to stand as a believer declaring my faith or even just standing up for my faith in a crowd of people who are looking for some sort of reaction. It takes courage to declare you are a believer in a group of unknowns or even to an individual that you don't know how they will respond. I've observed that opposition to the gospel generally comes because of a couple of things. One, they didn't like the gospel. They find it offensive. Or two, they didn't like how I presented the gospel. I find that those who are the most vocal in reacting to the gospel are often the ones who are the most ready to receive it. And that vocal aspect is really a fence protecting what one inside knows is a real need. The first one is something that I can't and don't want to change. They don't like the gospel. The gospel is what it is. It's clear, it's concise, and it's very, very life-changing. Don't want to change the gospel. If they don't like the gospel, it's because of what the gospel is. Can't change and don't want to change that. The second is my responsibility. It has to do with my manner and my attitude. Paul is really only addressing the first one. It's in that that he is saying, don't be frightened. To the second one he would say, change and present it in a way that's worthy of the gospel. That's an inner heart thing for you, change. But for the first one as it relates to the gospel, Paul would remind us to look to the Scriptures for some of the things that our Lord has said. In Isaiah chapter 1, 41, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 31, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Do not be afraid nor discouraged. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Or in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present yourself your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Need I say more? Or shall I let the Scriptures say more? It is clear that He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. With what He has promised us, we can move forward without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So that leads me to my third general question. Number one, what is worthy conduct? Number two, what are the results of worthy conduct? And number three, what decisions do I need to make in the light of Paul's instruction? That's a tough question. Because we're all different. We're all at different places in our walk with the Lord. But let me pose a few scenarios. Number one, is the reason you can't conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of the Gospel of Christ, because you don't know Him? We read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which describes so clearly and so simply the Gospel message. All of us have rejected Christ. We've all lived a life of sin. Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, so death passed on all, in that all have sinned. But the Scriptures tell us that Jesus also died for all, and by my recognizing His payment of my sin, and personally inviting Him to deal with my sin, and to invite Him to be the Lord of my life, and I surrender my life to Him, I now can walk worthy of the Gospel. Is the reason you can't conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ? Because you know Him, you've received Him, you've invited Him to be your Lord but you've chosen not to live for Him. You've chosen to live a life that's in opposition to what He has said and what He wants. John wrote a little book, three of them to be exact, at the, recorded at the end of our New Testament. And in 1 John chapter 1, he says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That verse wasn't written to non-believers. That verse was written to believers who have turned their back on Christ. He is saying to those who have turned their back, come home, come home. Return to what you believe. Maybe you can't walk worthy of the Lord because of decisions you've made in your life. The grace of God is sufficient. Or maybe the third reason is 
you can't conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because you don't know how. It, scripture tells us that when we are part of the family of God, using the word born into the family of God by our belief in Him, we come as babes. We start as really knowing nothing, but we grow day by day in our faith. If you don't know how, it may be because you need to be a part of a discipleship group or you may need to meet with a counselor or a pastor to determine what are some steps of growth that can happen in your life. Don't hesitate in calling someone who can help you. Fourthly, is it, and I hope it's the case for all of us, I'm sure it's not, but I wish it were, that we are conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that a passage like this simply reaffirms the wonder and the glory of who Christ really is and His work in and through me. We live in an age of unprecedented opportunity. Never has there been a time since early Christianity when the bias against Christianity has been so strong, and yes, even so neutral in certain areas. A liberal media would want to make being a Christian impossible, removing it from every place where it can be spread. We can look at our age, and we can look at the direction our society has gone and say, it can't be done. We can't change it. Or we can look at it as believers walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and say, what an unprecedented opportunity we have to stand for and to live for and to walk in unity as a group of believers proclaiming the power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The choice is ours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunities You have given to us. Thank You for the challenge of walking worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Touch our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.